I'm going to ask for a volunteer to open in prayer. Rob Harder, would you open up, please? Amen. Thanks, Rob. All right, so we continue on in chapter 9 on free will, and we did up to and including section 2 last week, so we're going to start at section 3 this week. So I'll read it out, and then we're going to assign the verses and work through it. So page 27, chapter 9, section 3. It says, humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin, so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. Okay, so what we've seen so far is that there's nothing biologically in man forcing us to do good or forcing us to do evil. So in that sense, our will is free to choose what it wants. And pre-fall, man is able to want good or bad. After the fall, this is saying man has lost all ability to want the right things. So one of the, perhaps the worst consequence of the fall is that we do not desire the right things and therefore we will never ever, apart from the grace of God acting on us, choose the right things. So in the, for example, in Ephesians where it says we're dead in sin, if you go to the Greek, what it means is you're dead in sin. You're dead. You are spiritually dead in sin. Okay? So... Uh, it's not that we are not choosing, we're always choosing, but our desires are corrupted. And so, therefore, fallen man will always choose some form uh, of sinful outcome. And we'll work through that here. So let's read up to the first footnote. It says here, Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Who wants to take Romans 5, verse 6? Brooklyn. Who wants to take Romans 8, verse 7? Tyson. Okay, go ahead, Brooklyn. Romans 5, verse 6. Okay. So Christ died for the ungodly, and the, the question always comes up, um, if man's will is free in the sense that many people mean it as an absolute freedom, the question is fair, why did Christ need to die? Why did Christ need to die if we don't need a change of nature? Right? We can just start choosing to act good. But Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for these fallen people. And so it's by grace 
that we're saved start to finish. And then Tyson, Romans 8, 7, and maybe read verse 8 as well. Okay. So again, if your initial decision to be saved, if your initial decision to repent and come to the gospel uh, originated in you yourself, does it please God when sinners repent of their sins and come to Him? Yes, it does. Okay? So if that's you making a self-determined kind of initial choice that... I now choose to be born again, would that please God? Yes, it would. But what does it say here? It says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Your choice to come to the gospel, your choice to repent of your sins and to accept Christ by faith is grace. It's grace. Because if it was self-produced, if, if faith is something we can generate out of nothing in our own hearts, it would please God, but it says here we cannot please God. So this must be the grace of the Spirit working in and through uh, our willing uh, to come to Christ. And I'll stop there. We've discussed some of this as we've gone on, so it's not all new here. Discussion on this. Does the Biblical testimony makes sense? Is this challenging? Problematic? Confusing? No? Okay. Well, I'm assuming we're all catching on then if, uh, if there's no question. Um, so again, two, two important things to catch here. One... Apart from faith, no one is saved, so we must have faith. Two, that faith is not self-generated. The faith itself is a gift from God, because your will cannot gin it up out of nothing. Where would it come from? And then let's keep going. Thus, people in their natural, and there's a little footnote here, so without the aid of the Spirit, so just you on your own, so thus people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good, and dead in sin. Who wants to take Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. Kenan, go ahead. And maybe read the whole thing, 1 through 5. And isn't that a great summation of everything? By nature, you are children of wrath. By nature, because we descend from our first parents who fell into sin and corruption, by nature, we are children of wrath. We're dead in sin. And notice, dead in sin doesn't mean we're not acting. 
Let's go back and look at what Kenan just read. These people are acting all the time and they're choosing, but how are they choosing? It says we're dead in trespasses and sins. So we're actively doing something in our death. We're like, kind of like zombies. We're dead, but we're moving. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see spiritual death here. These people are still doing things. Can we see that? Death doesn't mean you're just laying still and comatose. It's the living dead. Okay? It's zombie type stuff. Spiritually dead, incapable of doing or wanting anything good apart from the grace of God. And yet here we are living, breathing, making a million decisions every day. All of which are in opposition to God unless the spirit and the grace of God changes the nature of that heart. And so again, what, what this is driving at is to show the depth of the problem of fallen man and then to show that grace is actually amazing. Grace isn't a top-up of the last 30% after you try really hard and you can't quite make it, then grace kind of pushes you over. Grace is amazing. Grace is radical. Grace does not throw out a life preserver to a drowning man so that he can grab it. Because what this describes is drowning men want to drown. You can throw a life preserver all you want. They hate it because they hate where it comes from. Okay? This is not throwing a life preserver to a drowning man. This is diving to the bottom of the sea and resuscitating dead people. People who hate God. People who love living a self-indulgent life. Who love living for themselves. Who love their own ideas more than bending the knee to Scripture. Those are the people that Christ swims to the bottom and resuscitates and breathes life into. And so that by the time we get to the end of Ephesians 2.5 here, by grace you have been saved. And I can't stress this enough, start to finish. Your desire to be saved is part of the package of salvation. I often think of the lyrics of Amazing Grace. I've shared this before. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." John Newton is absolutely correct. If you are scared of the wrath of God as an initial step to, take, to come to God for comfort, that is grace. It's a grace of God that you are scared of God's wrath. Okay? Because the unbelieving heart has no fear whatsoever. The unbelieving heart thinks it's walking fine. Oh yeah, no, maybe I'll do it later, maybe never. You know, God's just kind of winking at my sin. It's not a big deal. I'm, I'm just going to live for myself. If you're scared of the wrath of God, that is a very good sign. And we don't have to stay there. We don't stay living in fear of the wrath of God. We move from that to living in peace, living in comfort, knowing that His grace has saved us. But that initial step uh, is important. It's grace. It's a grace of God if you're scared of Him enough to come to Him for peace. Uh, and again, I'll, just, I'll stop there. Can you see the picture that Paul is painting here in Ephesians 2? Radical corruption and a radical rescue operation. Okay. And for many of us, this is far more radical, both on the condemnation and on the grace. This is far more radical than we were taught to believe. Okay. This is not uh, a little bit of law and a little bit of moral you know, gospel and put it in a blender and we've got this law and grace cocktail. 
This is 90 proof law that kills and 90 proof grace that makes alive. Okay? This is straight up stuff. This is not a cocktail of uh, indistinguishable law and grace. Okay? You're dead, now you're alive. All of grace, amazing grace. Are we still wrapping our heads around this? Have we been working on this enough that it all is coming together? If this is indeed what the Bible teaches, for who is this much more radical, both on the, both on the death and on the grace, than what we historically thought? For me, this is much more, much more radical. Okay? We're a quiet crowd this morning. Rob, do you have something you want to add? <laughs> Someone's got to get it going here. We'll get there eventually, I guess. All right, let's keep driving. <clears throat> so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. And let's read there. Who wants to take Titus 3, 3 through 5? Have a volunteer, Don, and who wants to take John six forty four? Who's got that? Tim. Okay. Go ahead then. Once you're ready. Okay, so again, you see here, what Paul is telling Titus is in our fall, in the fallen nature, in the default sinful nature of man, God giving us more freedom is actually a curse, not a blessing. Okay, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By giving him more freedom. Okay, giving him more rope to keep running and to keep being Pharaoh. That's how God hardens someone's heart. Not by planting evil in them, but by just loosening the reins. <laughs> okay, if you've ever ridden a horse and then you give it a little more rein, that means the horse is kind of getting more and more in charge to do what it wants. Okay, so it's just God putting up more rein, a little more rein. Uh, that's how God hardens the heart of the wicked, is by giving them more freedom. But true freedom isn't the freedom to sin. True freedom is what Christians experience. True freedom is the freedom from sin. Okay, that's true freedom. And that comes by the grace of God. Okay, so we don't want freedom in our sin and corruption. We want true freedom, which is to lay sin aside. If true freedom meant the ability to sin, that means God is actually less free than you are. Think about that for a minute. Are we going to say we have more freedom than God? God cannot sin, okay? Not because there's some external constraint on him, but because God's nature never desires sin. He is absolute light. He is absolute holiness. Okay? So to say that, that true freedom is the ability to go either way, we're saying we are more free than God himself is, which is impossible. Okay? True, absolute freedom is the freedom from sin. Sin does not give freedom. Sin makes promises and then reneges on them. Sin asks for more and more and more. It becomes a slave master. Okay? It always asks more. Think of how addiction works porn addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Think of how it works. It demands more 
and more and more and more and gives you a smaller and smaller and smaller payoff. That's how sin works. It's leading you into bondage. It's leading you into slavery. Okay? And it keeps snapping its fingers, and you have to obey when it snaps its fingers. You have to. Okay? Whereas, how does the gospel work? The exact opposite. God says, all of grace, all free. Paid in full, it's yours. Okay? God doesn't snap his fingers. God gives everything in exchange for nothing. What do we bring him other than the sin that we need to be rescued from? Okay? So sin is never a freeing thing. Sin always leads us into bondage. The gospel sets us truly free. In John 6, 44, who had that? Tim? Okay. Whoever had that? Did we all have the same elementary teacher? Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And she would correct you and say, no, no, no. May I go to the bathroom? Right? Did we all have the same teacher? Yeah, okay, good. Do we understand the difference between may and can? Can is a question of ability. May is a question of permission. Jesus is not saying here, and these are the words of Jesus, Jesus is not saying that no man may come. He's not saying you don't have permission to come. He's saying you have no ability to come. Okay? You may come. In fact, you must come. In fact, you are commanded to come. Jesus is not saying you may not come. Jesus is saying you cannot. You can't. There's nothing in you that wants to. Your moral ability is corrupted. It's broken. You cannot. You have no ability, even though morally you must come. Okay? And he is going to show us how he fulfills the condition of coming. Okay? And it says, no one can come. Okay? So who's out? If you look at humanity, what percentage of humanity is out by default? 100% is out. But then he provides a condition here. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the word drawing here is uh, not wooing. This is the same word as you get uh, when someone would draw water from a well. Okay? Unless the Father pulls you, you can't come. Unless he works in you so that you come <laughs> willingly, uh, unless he draws you effectually and makes sure you come, it's not going to happen. Again, not because Jesus is telling certain people to stay away. He's commanding all people everywhere to repent. It's because until the moment that you are reborn, you don't want to. Okay? The rebirth is absolutely critical. And we don't talk about the rebirth a whole lot in Christian circles anymore. But the rebirth is absolutely essential. Without being born again, Jesus says in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom. You're blind to it. You can't see it until or unless the Father works on you. And I'll stop there. Do we see what John 6.44 is teaching? What Jesus is telling us in this verse? Is this a hard teaching? Right? Is Jesus winning friends and influencing people? Keep going. This isn't in our text, but I think verse 66. This whole sermon works like this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You can't come unless you draw me. This is a hard kind of old-school evangelical sermon so that it makes sense by verse 66. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus knew how to thin out a crowd. If you're here for bread and circuses, people, uh, I'm going to preach until you don't like it anymore. Okay? And Martin Luther later says, always preach in such a way that if people don't hate their sin, they at least hate you. <laughs> Make sure there's hatred by the end of every sermon. Either hatred of sin or hatred of the preacher who reminded you uh, about your sin. And Luther was such a preacher, but clearly Jesus was too. Okay? Jesus was not a universally loved flower child. Jesus was a gospel preacher with some hard edges on him and lots of compassion for broken people and lots of hard words for people who were self-sufficient. Okay? And then Jesus said to the 12, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Okay? Jesus wasn't concerned about building a crowd. This is like Gideon's willing warriors. If you're man enough for the battle, stay with me. If you want to go home, now's your chance. Now's your chance, okay? But we, we're not going to have partway Christians here. You're either in or you're not. And so I'll stop. I'll stop there. Questions on this? This is hard preaching. How would you have felt if you were in this audience of Jesus? Would you have told him he should be a bit more Christ-like? A bit more winsome? Val just said that a lot of these verses that we just examined this morning, in light of this understanding, if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, they make a lot of sense. Whereas Val was saying to her 10 years ago, they didn't make a lot of sense. And I'd say the exact same thing. It's amazing how many fewer problem passages I had once I could let go of certain traditions. As painful as that is for someone like me, it's very hard to let go of a tradition. But we as Christians, if we're people of the word, we all want to vow to not have any problem passages. That's our goal. If we're going to be people of the word, don't have problem passages. Don't make a construction that's so man-made that you start, you know, it makes sense internally, but you have all these problem verses, okay? First we harmonize with scripture, and then we try to harmonize it inside. Amen. Everyone here, Don? Don just said that initially, again, I want to summarize other people well. Initially, he had felt like it wasn't a big operation for him to become a Christian because he was a pretty morally upright guy. And then coming to the realization that he's no better off than Ted Bundy. And for you younger ones, Ted Bundy was a serial murderer back in the day. Um, that changes your outlook. 
right? And, and this is true. The gap, let's pick the godliest person I can think of. Jonathan Edwards, whatever, you, whoever you want to pick. The godliest person you know on a scale of holiness is much, much, much closer to Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin than he is to Jesus Christ. Okay? Fallen man is in a lot of trouble. Let's keep going. Number four. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will what is evil. So now we're moving from pre-conversion man to now we're looking at post-conversion man. Okay? So let's break this into bite-sized pieces again. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin. And we've got two texts here. Who wants to take uh, Colossians 1.13? Brooklyn. And John 8.36. Now I'm going to volunteer Keith. All right. Colossians 1.13. Okay, Brooklyn, can I ask you a question? I just did, so I'm going to ask you one more question. If you look at verse 13, who is the actor in that verse? Yeah. And who's being acted on? Yeah. See how important this is? It's really you being converted. But God is the actor. God is the one who is energizing and animating this process in and through us. So it's true, no one will have faith for you. Okay? Faith is something you personally must have to approach the Father. But again, that doesn't answer the origin question. Where did that faith come from? Yes, you must possess faith. Okay? But where did that faith come from? God. God's animating the whole process. God is working in and through you, and it's your faith once he gives it to you. But the origin is in God. The action is in God. The rebirth is in God. And then, Keith, you had John eight thirty six. All right. See how we're moving now? Okay, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And again, what's true freedom? What's true freedom? Freedom from our sin. Yeah. And there's one way that that will happen, and that's through the gospel. Right? Questions on that? Thank you. 
Did everyone hear Inga? Inga just said she respects preachers that uh, are honest enough to talk how they haven't made it yet. They are still on this side of glory with feet of clay. And she used Alistair Begg as a specific example of someone who in his preaching mentions his own flaws, his own sin, his own weakness. Right? He's not uh, setting himself up as the standard, be like me. He's a dying man pointing other dying men to a living Savior. Right? Uh, or another expression, one beggar showing another beggar where he can get bread. That's preaching. Preaching is not, look at me. Be like me. Because we're all going to be wired differently. And, and real piety is going to look different for everybody. Right? Real piety is going to lead this person to do this and this person to do this. And that's okay. So we don't all have to be like the preacher. But the preacher has to show the way to the, to the bread. Because we're all starving beggars. Okay? And of course, that's a bit convicting, but I hope you all know me in my private life well enough to know that I'm not that guy. My family for sure knows. <laughs> I, I must apologize many times in a week to my family. But this is true. Uh, and that's not just true for preachers, that's true for all Christians. Uh, and this is, and I will say this, as much as a personal testimony has its place, there is a bit of a danger there. Be careful how you share your testimony. Okay? Be careful that you're not the star of your own show. Okay? Even in your testimony, ha- make sure it's clear this is how God has worked in your life. Not how you are now the standard of you know, workplace conduct. Or you're the standard of a godly businessman. Okay? In all of our vocations, you know, I'm the perfect... Uh, I'm the perfect housewife, and, and there's always you know, perfect baking, and I'm always dressed nice and whatever. Uh-uh. What's God doing? What's God doing? Okay? We're dying people pointing other dying people to living water. So it's always about God. Lisa. That they're talking about, okay. Okay, there's a ditch on either side of the road here. The side that I grew up in didn't think covenantally at all. 
there was never talk about covenants or anything like that. Almost never. Okay, so everyone was standing on their own. Okay, and, and it's like each new life that came into the world was like a fresh atom that could go this way or that way. <laughs> right? Um, which, of course, isn't biblical. These people, we're not, we're not individuals, we're interdividuals. Right? So not every person is a fresh creation in the sense that we're starting from scratch. We come from somewhere. Right? So we shouldn't think of ourselves as individual marbles in a bag. Think of yourself like a leaf on a tree. Yes, each leaf is its own, but it's connected to everything else. Okay? So we are interdividuals. So I do think we need to think covenantally. So on the one side, you can think every person's is fresh creation. It makes no difference whether you grow up in a Christian family or, or whatever, right? This doesn't matter because everyone's, everyone's totally on their own. And that's not a healthy way to, to view children, okay? Um, and some people will so emphasize the depravity of their babies, which is true, but they'll so emphasize it that some would take this so far as until their children are converted, they won't pray with them because God doesn't listen to the prayers of unbelievers, right? So, and, and this is a bit of a, well, it, it's a problem in a wide swath of evangelicalism, is treating your kids like they're just out, out completely. There is another ditch on the other side of the road, which is like a kind of a hyper-covenantalism. Mom and dad are Christians, therefore the children are holy, okay? And it actually says that in the Bible. Do you know that? Children of at least one believing parent are holy? 1 Corinthians 7. It actually, it says that. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean to be in covenant, in a covenant family? I don't think it means presumptive regeneration, that all children of believers are just kind of automatically regenerate. I think there is an organic reaping and sowing connection, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, one of the messages. It makes sense the way God normally operates, that he's normally going to produce new believers in the seedbed of a believing home. But he is in no way bound to that. Okay? Many believing parents have wayward children. And many wayward parents are blessed with believing children. Okay? So God is free to operate outside of those boundaries. Okay? Um... I just, man, I look at some families, you know, my grandparents' age, and my grandparents were some of the godliest people I know and have struggled tremendously with some of their children. And I look at one of my grandpa's peers who was the town drunk, and he went seven for seven on believing children. By our rules, that shouldn't work. But God's grace is free. Okay, so God works according to certain patterns, but he is free to cut in and, and to cut out and graft in as he pleases according to his sovereign mercy. So I would speak, especially when our children were small, I think it's appropriate to say we are a Christian family. Because we are. I'm the head of this family. If my wife is deputy, we're Christians. We're raising Christians here. We're in the business of producing Christian people. So I think it's safe to say we are a Christian family. But I wouldn't understand that to mean our kids are automatically in the kingdom. We're going to steer them that way. We're going to instruct them that way. We're going to disciple them that way so that it feels natural. So that we're not creating an atmosphere that it has to be a crisis conversion or it's not real. 
My hope is actually that none of our children will remember their crisis conversion, because I hope it's not a crisis for any of them. I hope, I hope the Spirit has worked on them when they're so small, it just feels natural to just keep walking with the Lord. And if they go through a rough stretch and there is a crisis conversion, then to God be the glory. But I don't think we can assume that. Um, and I've mentioned this when the uh, Puritans, the English Puritans, had to escape England under Bloody Mary. Many of them went to Switzerland and many of them went to the Netherlands. Um, and in, I'm not picking on anyone here. I pick on Mennonites enough. Can I pick on the Dutch a little bit? Okay, okay. Um, they lasted a few years in the Netherlands before they felt we have to leave here. The way they have done their covenantal thinking is not good. They're assuming all their kids are saved automatically and it's yielding some really bad fruit because there's a lot of unregenerate people in the church influencing the church, making decisions, living ungodly lives. Um, but because they're Dutch and they're covenantal, they're good because grandpa was a godly man after all. And we have that in all cultures. I, Mennonites don't talk about covenants so much, but if I'm honest, my last name is a ticket to heaven. And I speak low German, so I'm probably going to be closer to the throne of grace than English people. But we, we all do that with our little things. But the dividing line here isn't your last name. It's not where you grew up. It's not whether your parents are Christians or not. And Christian parents are a tremendous blessing. And normally, it yields in Christian children. You should have been at men's theology night. Okay, so Lisa's next question is, if there's a child of believers who passes away in infancy, are we safe to assume that they're in heaven? If they're of believing parents. Okay, the church has dealt with the question of infant salvation three different ways, probably of which the vast majority of us have ever only heard one. Who... Who has always known that all babies go to heaven? Okay. That, that was the view that Christians could have when I was a kid. And that was the only one ever discussed, because that was the only view. But historically, the church has given three different answers, and I'll tell you my own at the end. Uh, one is to say that all infants, because, not because of their innocence but because they are not willing participants in their sin are covered somehow by grace in a way that we don't know. Okay, that's one answer. So all children go to heaven. And, and this would apply also to extremely handicapped people, people that don't have the faculties uh, to understand and be willing participants in their sin are somehow or another covered by grace. Another answer is, and this is the easiest one, we don't know. Will not the Lord of heaven and earth do what is right? We don't know. And, frankly, the Bible doesn't actually answer this as a direct question anywhere. So whichever answer you land at, be, be cautious. Okay? David Faherty, my favorite golf commentator, always says, that ball landed on the green like a butterfly with sore feet. Okay? That's how we ought to land on some questions. Tenderly, because the Bible does not directly answer this question. We're working with inference here no matter what our answer is. 
And the third answer is on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7, that the children of at least one believing parent are holy, that the children of believers are saved. Okay? Do you understand the three possible answers? So which is it? It's one of those three. (laughs) (laughs) If we really want to punt it, we could just say, we don't know, will not the Lord of heaven and earth do what is right? My own answer, how I personally would answer this, is my understanding is that not because of innocence, but because of the grace of God, I do think that children, regardless of their parents, uh, and extremely handicapped, are under the grace of God. Okay? I will not fight for that. I will not be dogmatic about it. That's my inference from Scripture. And I'll show my work a little bit. One, in Romans 1, why don't we go to Romans 1? Verse 20, and it's talking about the accountability of fallen man, that we know better. We're without excuse. Uh, Let's start at verse 18, actually. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So I'm going to ask you, does a nine-month-old clearly perceive God in creation? Here's my guess. And again, I will not be dogmatic on this. Faithful Christians have answered this three different ways. My guess is, because of what this teaches, because these small ones are not, and handicapped ones, are not willing participants in their sin, they do not clearly perceive. Does that mean they're innocent? No. Here we're, here's where I will be dogmatic and I will fight someone. Never talk about a child going to heaven because they're innocent. They're not. Okay? What, what does David say? In sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? We are sinners from the moment of conception. So nobody is in heaven because of innocence. Not one person, including little babies who die in miscarriage. They're not innocent. They're fallen sons and daughters of Adam. However, watch my work closely here. This was actually a contested point between the Calvinists and the Arminians because initially the Arminians said, well, if you guys are right, then there's all these babies that don't have a chance. And the Reformed response was, and I think correctly, no, no, If the rebirth is an act of your will, now you have cut all the babies out of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Because no six-month-old can decide it's time to be born again. The Arminians have cut all the babies out of the kingdom of heaven. And the only way they can get them back in is by pretending that they're innocent, which the Bible clearly says they're not. They've got no way to get babies into heaven.
And that baby made it. Yep. Yep. No. No, I would not. I would make the argument for all because even unbelieving babies, or baby, babies of unbelieving parents can't fulfill Romans one twenty any better than the child of a believing parent. But here's where I would rest my argument. They're not there because of innocence, and they're not there because they chose to follow Jesus. If everything we've just said is true, and the rebirth comes from the grace of God alone, is it possible for the Holy Spirit to regenerate and make a baby be born again before the baby knows what's happening to them? And, and John the Baptist is an example of someone who was born again before he got out of his mother's womb. Okay? This heavy emphasis on corruption and on amazing grace makes it possible for babies to be born again and have infantile faith in the living God before their minds are fully functioning. And so however many babies are in heaven, whether it's 10% or 100%, and I think it is 100%, they are there on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. They're not there because of innocence. They're not there because of an act of the will. They're there because they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) However immature, however infantile it is, because the Spirit can make you born again without your help. He can just do it. That's the basis on which I believe all children who are in heaven are there. And that's the point at which I will be pushy on. And I'm guessing it's 100%. But I will not be dogmatic on that. And this is a tricky issue, because this is pastoral for many people, because we all have been touched by miscarriage or stillbirth or accidental deaths somehow or another. Okay, So pastorally, this is important that we discuss it maybe right now than right after someone's baby has died. It's better to learn when there's not tremendous pain involved. Anything else on this? Sean. Amen. So grandpa's drunkenness and dad's anger problem are not imputed to the baby. Original sin is, but so can the grace of Christ be imputed to that baby, right? But, but you're right. Anything else before we bring it in for landing? We did discuss this question at Men's Theology Night, and it was a good discussion, and it's probably good that we do it here. Uh, wherever you land on this, is that helpful to think that there's, this question isn't quite as straightforward maybe as what we think? And what are the important things to put on the table and what are the things that we're, say, let's have the humility we don't know? 
Is that a helpful way to frame this? Okay, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you that you are a loving and compassionate Savior. Lord, I thank you that you look at a hopeless mass of humanity and you still have grace. Lord, I pray that when we discuss these things, we would not stay in a place of despair or in a place of fear, but that that despair and that fear would quickly move us into having peace with you, into focusing on the equally radical nature of grace and your freedom to operate with that grace and to apply it even in the most unlikely cases. Lord, I pray that we would not see this as a way of cutting people off, but as a way of providing hope to even the most difficult situations, even to handicapped people and little babies who are not yet thinking on their own. Lord, you are free to send your grace where you wish, when you wish, how you wish. And I pray that we would do that, but I also pray that we would parent and work and preach and teach and mentor in such a way that honors your normal way of working, which is through the normal means of church life, through the normal means of family, of discussion, of plugging into each other's lives. Lord, we know that this is what's commanded of us, and this is how you normally work. And so I pray that we would be faithful to all man our stations as we do that, to raise our children in the faithful expectation and hope that they will know you. Lord, and to not despair when we see hard cases, but know that uh, if Saul of Tarsus is not beyond your grace, If Nebuchadnezzar is not beyond your grace, Lord, then neither are our children, neither are our parents, neither are our cousins and our friends and our co-workers. Lord, give us a healthy dose of optimism as we think about the sovereignty of your grace. Help us to be thankful that our wills have been freed and that we're not resting on something that we have done but entirely on you for our salvation, start to finish. Fill us with amazement for your grace. Lord, this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we hear your word being expounded, feed us, teach us, strengthen us for the week ahead. And I pray also for our picnic this afternoon that that would be uh, a time of bonding and of closeness and of enjoying each other and growing closer as a church family. Thank you for your kindness. Amen.